welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Brand, and we are in season one. And in season one, we are looking at the underlying elements of the PACT approach to couples therapy. This is an interview that I actually recorded way back in September of 2019. And I'm deciding to bring it back and publish it because I think it goes nicely with the Rob Fisher interview about somatic therapies. I think it's a nice compliment to that. At the time, I felt like this episode was missing something. And what I realized that it was missing was the somatic element within the actual interview. And um, so it felt a little bit removed from somatic experience, which is what the interview is about. So what I decided to do in the Rob Fisher interview, which you can hear two episodes back, is that I decided to record, um, have him lead me through um, an actual somatic exercise. And I think with that in mind, you can listen to the Rob Fisher somatic exercise and his episode. And then with this, I think this grounds the element of somatic therapy, the underlying element, um, with with a little bit more content and a little bit more context about how a somatic therapist thinks. And we are lucky enough in this episode to have Marjorie Rand, who's a longtime integrative body psychotherapist, um, and she's got a great ex- she's got great experience. She was a real kick to talk to. She's also told me I'm going to include in the liner notes um, some IBP integrative body psychotherapy um, breathing techniques that are specifically geared towards what's going on now with um, with uh, the COVID virus. So um, take a look at that. Take a listen to the interview. I hope everyone is doing well. It's been such a crazy time. I hope your practices are doing okay. I hope that your families are okay. I hope that you're holding up, doing all this Zoom and uh, telehealth. And um, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Packed in Theory podcast. My name is Jason Brand, and we are here today with Marjorie Rand, who is a therapist in Los Angeles. Marjorie, is that right? I'm in Manhattan Beach, California, which is in L.A. County. Okay. I know Manhattan Beach is beautiful there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she is an integrative body psychotherapist, among, among many other um, hats that she wears, and, and I'm hoping we can get a little bit of information about that. Um, Marjorie has written um, a number of books, um, including one, Body, Self, and Soul, uh, which she wrote with Jack Rosenberg, which is about IBP. And, um, and she's been a practitioner for many years, and she not only um, does, um, not only practices psychotherapy, but also does a lot of body work with yoga, it sounds like. Um, and so I'd like just, if you could just do a little bit more of an introduction of yourself, Marjorie, I think that would be helpful for people. Okay. Well, what I was going to talk about was couples work because 50% of my practice is with couples and that, um, Jack, uh, uh, married, uh, one of my very best friends, Dr. Beverly Morse, and they wrote a book called the intimate couple. And that book was based on the book that Jack and I wrote, um, Body, Self, and Soul, Sustaining Integration, but also on Jack's first book, which was written in the 70s called Total Orgasm, which was one of the first books ever written about healthy sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, a sort of a combination of Jack's first two books and then putting those things sort of integrated uh, and then combining that into the new book, which was a book about couples. And so um, I just wanted to, you know, bring that sort of up to the you know, present day of how, you know, IBP is, you know, uh, applied to couples work. And we do use, we do bring the body into couples work by doing experiential work with people, not just, you know, talking with them. And that one of the huge influences in IBP, Jack and I both were certified Gestalt therapists. Mm-hmm. Jack actually worked with Fritz himself. I uh, was not old enough. Jack's 10 years, my senior, of course, he's no longer, he passed in 2005. But so I wasn't around for Fritz either. But um, so Gestalt therapy is a huge influence, but also neo reiki and i i studied with the neo reikians jack studied 
with uh, uh, a chiropractor. I can't think of his name now, but uh, it'll come to me perhaps. But um, so we have a lot of, you know, the neo Reikian, but also I'm a certified yoga therapist and Jack studied yoga many years and actually went to India. So we have a lot of Eastern and Western influences, mm. but you know, most people would not even be able to imagine how you can do somatic work with couples, but we do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's yeah, something, something I can add. Great. And that's what I'm looking forward to talking to you about today. I mean, one of the, one of the major intervention strategies in PACT is experiential and how do we get people to sort of feel things in a bottom-up way in the room. And, um, and I think it's hard for a lot of us who are trained, you know, to sort of be more in the mind to, to have the kind of courage, maybe bravery to, to try to get people uh, have, you know, to, to create somatic experience in couples. And I'm hoping that we can get some, some insight into that today. Absolutely. Great. Um, so may, I was thinking as a way to start, um, uh, maybe start syncing if we could sync up some of the PAC terms and the IBP terms to the best of our abilities. Um, and maybe they overlap or maybe they don't, but I thought um, that would be a good way to kind of ground the conversation. Okay. So can we talk the overlap between attachment theory and primary scenario? And if my language here is outdated, because I, I, I'm, I got a lot of the language from this out mm -hmm. of body, self and soul. So please mm -hmm. correct me if I'm using okay. old language. But attachment theory and primary scenario, where do they meet up and where are they different? Okay. Well, a primary scenario, Jack sort of liked to use a movie metaphor because here we are in LA, right? Mm. So that means first scene, but really it's a, it's a multi-generational history of relationships. So we go back at least three generations. And when, when Jack first started, you know, being able to teach um, you know, we didn't have an institute. When he, he and I became partners, we started a training institute. Uh, so um, the, the primary scenario, it looks like a genogram, but it's not a genogram. It's our, you know, a variation. Some of the things about the genogram are the same, like circles are women and squares are men and, you know, how you mark who's alive and when they died and so forth. But it's, it's, it really is not a genogram. And um, we didn't know about epigenetics in those days, but we know about it now. But really, we knew that what happened to your grandmother was already, you know, important in influencing you. We didn't know then that the what was to become you was already cellularly in the egg of the uh, the uh, fallopian, not the fallopian tube, but the um, having a senior moment. What I know now is that what was to become you was already in the fetus mm -hmm. of what was to become your mother mm. in your grandmother. Mm -hmm. So what happened to your grandmother was cellularly communicated to what was going to become you, at least to the egg part of what was going to become you. So we, we do track the mother's side because the egg mm. is so much older than the sperm. In other mm. words, it's three generational three generations old, whereas the sperm never could be older than 72 hours, usually, you know, 48, maybe 24. Huh. So, you know, that's epigenetics. So, you know, what happened to your grandmother is cellularly, you know, passed down to you. So that's an important part of the, of the primary scenario. And I'm sure that, you know, it can, very easily be translated into attachment theory. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we do look at things like, you know, um, abandonment issues or invasion issues. So, uh, you know, we look at a scale. Most people are not on the very ends 
of the scale. Most mm -hmm. people are somewhere in between, you know, where their issues are high abandonment or high invasion or somewhere in between. Now, if you're stuck in the middle and have equal amounts of abandonment and invasion, that's where you have a more serious issue. That's where personality disorders, et cetera, come in because you're, I mean, you're stuck. You can't move. Does that make sense to you? I don't know where that fits with ACT, but uh huh. Well, I, I think I think it does. Um, let, let's 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 keep fleshing this out a little bit, and then so I guess I guess the reason I chose that question about primary scenario is because I was I'm I, I my sense of IBP is that is that it also looks at sort of your genetic and attachment heritage as a way to determine how you're going to show up in relationship. Right. It is, as I said, it's a multi-generational history of relationship patterns. Yeah. Okay, great. And then, and from that forms character, right? And that's, and, and. Exactly. And character is not your identity. It's a okay. defensive way of relating. And it's, you know, it's, it's a survival strategy in the beginning, but it turns around when you're about midlife. Mm -hmm. and becomes harmful rather than helpful. Uh-huh. And so there's there's this idea that within IBP that 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 we are that our energy that we're born with with uh I'm I'm probably going to mince the words here but but sort of a pure energy but then as as attachment patterns or as our character as as we make adaptations does this sound right? That if we make yes. adaptations, then it sort of, it goes into, it goes the wrong direction, essentially. Okay. I would say even before birth, you know, um, starting with conception and during pregnancy, obviously it isn't just subs substances, substances, excuse me, mm -hmm. that the mother puts into her body. It's also ideas and thoughts and you know, not that the fetus can understand English per se, but she has brain chemicals that are constantly going in um, into the fetus and there's no boundary there. So the fetus, you know, doesn't know the difference between what the mom is feeling, between what what it's feeling. So even, you know, pre, pre uh, uh, during, uh, during pregnancy, the fetus is taking in all of the mother's experiences. So they're already forming, uh, how do I want to say it? They're getting uh, what we call injuries or to the sense of self. Mm -hmm. So the sense of self is not just born pure. It's already got injuries. And so it's already even with the best of bonding, with the best of birthing practices, it's still already been, you know, injured in a way, you know, mm -hmm. at least somewhat. Nobody's had a perfect experience. Mm -hmm. That's just life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. just the way that it is, you know, and all kinds of things can happen during birth. Um, you know, we all hope for the best, but whatever. So, you know, we want to do the best bonding that we can, but, you know, life is what it is. So we do, you know, begin to develop defenses, which in the beginning of our life are survival strategies. We have to have them and they work for us for most of our life up to a certain point. Mm. But in relationships, defenses, you know, protect us, but they don't allow us to be vulnerable to where we can really have intimacy. Mm -hmm. So at some point we have to, our defenses have to open up and allow enough vulnerability to have intimacy and connection. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you know, we have to be able to loosen our defenses and, you know, and be open. And that's, you know, what I think we want to achieve in psychotherapy. Most people are so identified with the defense, they aren't even in touch with what's underneath the defense, which is the sense of self, which mm -hmm. we believe in somatic.
psychotherapy, that that exists in the body. It's not an idea. It's not a belief system. It's not just a head with nothing underneath it just to carry it around, you know, but it is energetic. It's, it's, it's in the body. It's not just a, you know, again, just an idea of who you are. It's an experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one thing that you have trained for, these, for many years in doing is watching bodies, right? I mean, that's part, of, that's part of what you do is watching how bodies, how the energy in bodies work and move. Is, well, absolutely. Right? I, I was a, you know, a, a dance movement therapist first, mm. but that is not a license. It's just a certification. So I had to go back to school and get an LMFT in California. Then I got a PhD for writing the dissertation, which was the first five chapters of what eventually became Body, Self, and Soul. Mm. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I've been licensed for 40 years as an LMFT in California. I also got licensed in Colorado because I had a I had a uh, training institute in Boulder for many years. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so I, uh, what I do, I have a sort of a weird way of saying it. I teach people how to do Reiki on themselves. Okay. In other words, I use the breath. I mean, I don't do anything to people i barely even touch them if i do i um i do uh, pressure points i use pressure points sometimes to just move energy around uh but i don't really use a lot of touch to help people release the muscular armoring as Wright called it muscular armoring mm-hmm. Uh, I want them to be able to go in their bodies, experience where it is, to be able to help them use their breath to move through the blockages, which are energy blockages, and be able to learn how to let go and get into the feelings that are underneath because the muscular armoring is the defense Mm -hmm. that's formed, you know, over the injury, which are these injuries, which I told you start even before birth, mm-hmm. they go back and usually we identify with the defenses and we are not, you know, even able to remember some of the early, because uh, they're so early in life, even before the age of three years, mm-hmm. uh, people don't have the frontal cortex developed so they don't have memories the memories are where in the body Mm -hmm. so you can recover those but you know we don't want to go back to the days when people were accusing therapists of you know forcing people to recover lost memories Mm -hmm. we never do that Mm -hmm. no but they're there you know and if we can use the breath to open the blockages and you know open the um, armoring is right called it and the you know and the injuries are there and we can do the work of healing the old injuries then what's underneath that is the sense of self mm, okay great. and one begins to connect to that sense of self and identity in the body where they can say that feeling of i am and actually feel you know, who they are and start to let go of the defenses, which are no longer working as survival strategies. You know, when you begin to hit midlife or even, you know, 40 or so, those things don't work for you. They work against you. Mm -hmm. And all those energy blockages start to cause you disease. Mm -hmm. And, and well, I mean, so let's, let's connect this to couples. In PACT, we would say that our, that our goal as therapists would be to help them to for uh, secure functioning, right? Which is um, sort of a, which is an attachment term around how do we make this good for me and good for you? Um, and I think for, I would say for PAC therapists, what we're trying to do is help the couple to articulate um, for each other, a sense that 
that, um, you know, taking, I think where, where some of this interacts is around the blockages of, you know, this is past injury, which is getting in the way of my being able to be fully in the relationship with you. Right. Um, what, what would be for IBP? What is the, what, what sort of the, the, the grounding principle in terms of couples? What are, what so, are you guys looking for? Okay. It's so interesting. You actually use that word because I work with about five concepts and one of them is grounding. Mm -hmm. The people have to be grounded. They have to be present. Uh -huh. And that's something that, you know, you have to teach what presence is. They, I do a, a lot of contact, eye contact exercises uh -huh. with them. So I have to teach them what grounding is. You know, whether they can feel their feet on the floor, whether they can feel themselves sitting in a chair, you know, so forth. And it's amazing, you know, that a lot of people can't. So till they're grounded, then eye contact exercises between the two of them, whether they can stay present, mm -hmm. you know, with each other and whether they, you know, they're actually there or not, or whether they're off somewhere else, you know, and whether they can tell with each other, whether they're, when they go away and when they're there. So that's presence. So contact and presence and, uh, you know, a grounding and presence. Mm -hmm. And then another one is boundary work. I use to actually use, have people use a piece of string to draw circles around them to actually concretize their energy fields. I have them move their chairs back and forth. You know, what is comfortable when they feel contact. It's some people want to go knee to knee and be right on top of each other. And mm -hmm. sometimes that that one person feels invaded. Sometimes people want to be really far away and one person feels abandoned. So there we're on that uh, invasion abandonment uh, idea. And so I have them move their chairs back and forth until both people are comfortable at, at the right uh, contact boundary, which is a, a gestalt uh, idea. And so I have them do that a lot in session with the string until, you know, it isn't their bodies, it's their energy fields, hmm. which are where, where the contact is ideal for both of them. And that changes, you know, it can change at various times, various places and so forth, how they can be aware of that. Sometimes I want you in my boundary, sometimes I don't, and how you know, the boundary has many aspects. Sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's spatial, you know, and so forth, teaching them about boundaries. So boundaries, grounding, presence, hmm. you know, all of those contexts. I mean, all of those concepts, excuse me, I well, work with. Couples. Can I, I, I love this. Can I slow this down a little bit? The, um, sure, sure. The, so, for us, we talk about, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Dan Siegel's uh, window of tolerance and holding people within without going too high or too low within. Yeah. within um, and, and we want to sort of create in the room a certain amount of pressure that, that is enough that people can feel, I think, as you would say, these points of, um, these points of contact and then where their boundaries are. What, what, what's the kind of pressure you're trying to hold in the room as an IBP therapist? Okay, so let's talk about the eye contact exercise for presence. Okay. They're looking at each other. They're not on top of each other. They're just close enough so eye contact is possible. You know, so that could be it's different for every couple. They have to first find where it is that both people find that they can make eye contact and it's comfortable for both people. That requires, you know, them to to find that for themselves. It's different for every couple. That requires work for them to even do that. Then when they are in eye contact, I tell them both, when you feel that you need to break contact with the other person, what you're doing is you're gonna close your eyes and you're gonna go into contact with yourself. So mm. it's contact with self, and when you're ready and you've made contact with yourself, you open your eyes and you make contact with the other. So it's an exercise in shuttling back and forth between contact with self and contact with other. And both people are doing the same. Mm 
So they look at the other person for as long as they can stay present with mm. the other person. When they can't stay present, they don't maintain staring, but going away behind their eyes. Mm. They make it clear and obvious by closing their eyes, going inside, and then when they feel ready to come out and make contact again, then they open their eyes. And they both you know, are doing it at different times because it's not the same. And they do that back and forth, and that way, you know, their rhythms are not going to be identical, obviously, mm. but it's an exercise where they're doing something and making it, you know, open to what's mm -hmm. going on instead of staring at each other, pretending to be there when they're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they learn, there's a lot of learning in that exercise. To a lot of learning. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, you probably don't use the word acting out would be my guess in terms of when people, when people like, what's the point of this? Um, you know, I don't even know what you mean by presence. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, just to get people sometimes to buy into the idea that eye contact is something that would be worth a worthwhile investment in their time mm -hmm. and in their, and in their resources, um, of couples therapy. How, what do you do about that? Just to get people sort of, um, a therapeutic alliance with people well you way. know most most of the time communication is always the first thing that needs to be worked on almost always uh, with practically every couple I've ever worked with so what happens is a lot of times you know and it's usually the woman I'm not gonna say it's always that way but usually the woman will say that the husband doesn't listen to her or doesn't hear her and as it turns out you know my guess is that the guys split off and not there so you know jibber jabber jibber jabber goes in one ear and out the other because he's not there uh -huh. so what i do is i have them be, see if they're willing to you know make eye contact and look at each other and she's going to look at him and she's going to be able to say that she's watching him and she's going to be able to say, you're there, you're there, you're not there. And then, you know, then, okay, I'm going to try to get him to put his feet on the ground, feel himself sitting there. And then she's going to say, okay, you're back. Okay, you're there, you're there, you're not there. So she's tracking him to get him to feel the difference between whether, you know, he's gone away or not, because he doesn't. He doesn't even really know. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that they can do. You know, she can let him know. She can tell when he's going away and when he's not. And he can begin to feel that in his own body so that he can make a choice. So sometimes he needs to say, you know, honey, I can't listen to you right now. Can we make a date or an appointment to when we can sit down when I'm not busy with work, when I'm not on the computer, when the kids aren't driving me nuts or whatever, whatever, mm -hmm. when he can be willing to stay present. But he has to learn to feel the difference between when he's there and when he's not. If she wants to talk to him and he's not able to stay present, we, we have to fix that first. Right. That's great. And, and it makes me think of a question about, so uh, why, how would you say, how does, the, how does somebody not how does somebody develop the capacity not to be there and how does somebody else develop in a couple develop the capacity to be so attuned to the other person like i, I you know um I, I, I in that scenario it might be that the, i'm laughing <laughs> what, what's, what's, how do they develop it they develop it very early in life mm, okay you know, if you have a nagging i mean i could make up any number of different things but if you have like a nagging, pressuring, critical, all kinds of different words, judgmental, I, I could name all kinds of adjectives of a parent, and you can't pack your bags and, and, and leave, then you have to leave your body. Mm. So, you know, uh, that's prior to, you know, a, a later age when your frontal cortex is developed. You just You just leave your body, and so... You don't, you don't hear it, you know, so you just, you just go away. Mm -hmm. Infants do that. There were studies, about, um, 
there was Brazelton studies of the still face, but there was other studies that I don't remember who it was, um, where they had a split screen and they used to show it at the psychology conferences mm -hmm. where the mother was trying to force the infant to perform, you know, get him to smile and she would tickle it and do all kinds of things. But, you know, it was so invasive. The infant would just fall back and start drooling and you could see it regressing. You know, mm -hmm. it would just, you'd see it just would just go away. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So I think they would develop that, that very early in life because there is no other thing it can do except split off from its body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and that answers one part of that question. Yeah. I can't remember what the other The part second was. part was, what about the person who is overly focused on the other person? Oh, um, well, that you also develop very early. If you want you, your needs met, you have to figure out what the other person's needs are and meet them in order to get your needs met. And that's mm -hmm. called, uh, you know the name of it in uh, Al-Anon. Uh, oh, uh, codependency. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. But there's another name psychologically. I just have a few senior moments here and now. I did get a memory test. They said there's nothing wrong with my memory. But every now and then I I can't remember the name of something. But yeah, it's called codependency. But there is, you know, we have a psychological term for it. But right. it means the same thing. Yeah. Right, right. And and in, and in attachment terms, we would call it, um, you know, we, we, there'd be clingy behavior or um, um, an anxious, it would be one of the forms of anxious attachment. Yeah, it would be. But the thing is that you have to figure out what the mom needs or the caregiver needs. And then you have to figure out how to meet their needs in order to get your needs met. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. right. Okay. okay. Um, and um, so the, uh, I thought it'd be good. I, I, I think you guys, you do such lovely work around boundaries and around explaining boundaries. And I think the body is such a perfect way to experience boundaries. So can you talk a little bit about kind of, you, you mentioned the, the string exercise and w with couples, um, can you talk a little bit about, about how you, your ideas about boundaries and, and how you work with them in the room? Yeah, well, with, an individual, I do it between myself and them. Like, where do you want me to sit? Mm. You know, it isn't just that the chair and your chair are stationary. They're not screwed into the ground, you know? Mm. Some people want to be right on top of you. Well, you know, that's not comfortable for me. I have to be comfortable it, it, as well. And what is the proper distance? So if it's an individual, I do it between myself and them as therapist clients. But with couples, you know, they have to do it between the two of them. So the first thing I do is I have each one of them just make a boundary for themselves. Nothing to do with the other person. Just what is my energy, uh, my energy field? What's the size of it? And most of the people don't even know what an energy field is. So I try to have them understand like if you go to buy a pair of shoes in a shoe store you try them on and you walk around with them to see if they fit mm -hmm. well you're going to try to find what your energy field what size fits you mm -hmm. and you know in order to do that they have to be grounded so I, I run them through a grounding exercise you know feet on the floor feel yourself sitting etc etc um, so this is a, you know, it's a sort of a whole process mm -hmm. that, you know, you have to put them through to begin to understand or to live or experience these concepts as experiences. So it's all experiential. Mm -hmm. It's not, if I give any, uh, call them lecturettes. They're just tiny little, you know, less than a few minutes explaining. And then I lead them through experiential exercises. Mm -hmm. First, they have to get a boundary for themselves. Then they deal with their own boundaries in relationship. Mm -hmm. Moving back and forth until each person can have their own boundaries that they make for themselves in the context of a relationship. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of moving back and forth until both people feel they're in contact. 
and yet they still have their own. And the point is not how far their, their chairs are. It's mm-hmm. how far the string is. Mm-hmm. You can visualize that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a lot of videos back in the day. It wouldn't be videos now, but they're, you know, the, the what are they called? You know, the DVDs, I guess, mm-hmm. of people doing these exercises. Mm-hmm. At Esalen and wherever I was teaching, Montreal, Vancouver, whatever, Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those can be, I, I actually gave the archives to USABP. Hmm. And they have like uh, 20 videos of me and 20 videos of Jack that anyone mm. can, you know, Great. see. They mm-hmm. have the archives, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did that a few years ago before Jack even passed away. Mm-hmm. So it is that you know people can actually see this stuff. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and what what are you looking for? I mean, uh, you, you you're asking the couple. Like I feel like I I'm sort of asking the same question again. But you're asking the couple to part of it. I imagine would just be around like the Gestalt idea of choice. You just want to help them to have choice about how they um no i want them to have the gestalt idea of awareness of awareness okay you know so that you know i know when someone is has has crossed my boundary and is Mm -hmm. inside my space and when you know i I have to be grounded in my body to, to you know to be aware of that and what i need to do about it do i need to say something do i need to move myself do i need to ask that person to move do i need to leave you know there's a number of different choices Mm -hmm. that i need to make but if i don't have the awareness i don't have the choice Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. the paradoxical theory of change Mm -hmm. you know which was arnie beiser you have to you have to um know where you are before you can before you can do something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think um, what I really appreciated, you know, studying the IBP um, method or, or approach is boundaries, you know, we use this word boundaries quite freely now, um, but you guys really do a good job of, of putting this to words and, and explaining the subtleties of it in ways that I found quite, quite a bit of depth to it. I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, that does come from Gestalt. But again, mm-hmm. you know, Fritz, he, if it wasn't for the Nazis, then Fritz would have studied with Reich, and he probably wouldn't have done Gestalt. He would have been a Reichian. Mm-hmm. But um, Reich had to to leave, and so did Fritz, and everybody, you know, fled, and Reich went to Norway. And I can't remember where Fritz was. Well, he, he ended up in the United States, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, Fritz did not incorporate the body fully. Had he been able to study with Reich, had the war not happened, then uh, 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 Fritz would have been a body psychotherapist. Interesting. But because of the war, he was not able to study with Reich. He tried to. But the war happened and Reich um, left Austria and went to Norway. And so Gestalt therapy does not fully incorporate the body. It, it goes as far as it goes. And I love Gestalt and I am a Gestalt therapist. But so you have awareness and that's always the most important thing anyway. Mm. But he doesn't go as deeply into the body. Obviously, we need to combine the neo writing approach along with the gestalt. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Jack and I are both yogis, or Jack was a yogi. I am a certified yoga therapist, so we have the Eastern and Western integrated into IBP, and that's pretty obvious, I think, when you read the book. Mm-hmm. The Another idea that I, I find um, quite interesting, and I think quite helpful with couples, is this idea of containment. And is that is that one of the five that you were talking about? Yes, it you is. Me- you mentioned grounding yeah, yeah. and presence well, and boundaries. If you have grounding and presence and a boundary, then you're able to contain, which means you can expand and you can contract. Expansion, contraction is an energetic concept. You do it with every breath. You're a vibrating being. 
every breath expand contract or expand let go i don't necessarily like the concept of contract because there's not tension involved mm. the word is used but i don't like the idea of you know contraction in the sense of muscular tension it's just you know expand and then let go mm. I did study with Charlotte Selver for many years, so I'm you're familiar with her work. I'm you not know, that she, familiar with her work. Can you tell? You know, sensory awareness. Okay. Charlotte Selver, you know, she's a, she was a huge influence. Also, mm. uh, there Charlotte passed at 102. Oh wow! And yeah, she, you know, her practice is simply called experiencing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so she was a huge influence upon me. And uh, so the idea of awareness, first and foremost, you know, why are we here? We're here, in my opinion, to become more conscious beings, period. Mm -hmm. I don't know another way to say it. Uh huh. And and if we're if you're sitting in a room with a couple and um, and you you have this experience of of them finding a moment where they uh, let's say connect let's say a connection happens between the two of them and then it just sort of goes away and there's nothing there they you know oh you know they turn to you for like okay what's next that seems to me a moment where they're not able to contain the experience yeah Is well that-, that hardly ever happens no it doesn't in happen in my to you? sessions when when they make a connection usually they hug each other. Uh huh. I mean, they hardly ever just have a connection and then just turn to me and say, what's next? I think that would be like ridiculous. But okay. then I've already grounded them. I've uh-huh. already got them to be present and in their, you know, in their bodies. Cause I don't work with them until they can be, uh-huh. you know, I don't sit, I don't just sit and listen to people telling stories. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a waste of time. Uh-huh. If they're coming to me, I mean, I'll do that in the beginning when they want to tell me why they're there and what their issues are. But then even in the first session, I might, you know, give them my type of diagnosis, which is a process diagnosis. I might mm-hmm. say, well, you've got a lot of abandonment issues and you, <laughs> you know, you, you know, seem to be able to invade him very easily and you see how he goes away and they both get it like light bulbs are going off Mm. all over the place Mm -hmm. and they're so excited to come back to the next because i never say it in a judgmental way Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. but i am diagnosing them but i'm diagnosing them in a process oriented way and they get excited to come back to the next session Mm -hmm. you know to work on it Okay. And they feel like, wow, you know, finally somebody gives them something, you know, they can get their hands on. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and I want to get this idea of containment, and I, I love your description of of that of all of that. And I want to get so so when you see somebody who struggles with containment, what are you seeing in in that person? A leaky sieve. Okay. Like, Like your boundary has so many holes in it. You can't, you know, you can't, it can't expand. Mm. You can't stay with something like in Gestalt. We'll go back to Gestalt. How many times when a person's having a feeling, you say, stay with it, Mm -hmm. stay with it, see what happens, let it develop, you know, see what happens, stay with it. You can't, you've got to, you know, you've got to express. You Mm -hmm. can't, you know, you have to, that's a person who can't contain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see. And then I, I also like the idea with containment that one thing that I think one defensive way that we, that we for people who have difficulty containing a leaky sieve would be that they project out and then the other person sort of catches the containment and they watch it in the other person. Does that sound Projection right? Projection is definitely one thing that happens. You know, and then, you know, the other thing is introjection. If you want to go back to Fritz's, you know, theory mm-hmm. of uh, um, mental or 
what was it? Dental aggression. Hmm. Fritz's theory of dental aggression is a book he wrote. Very dental, like as in the teeth. Yeah, he'd say you're born with a sucking personality because <laughs> the way that you suck is you get the 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 protein, not the protein that the the um, nutrients nutrients that you need mm -hmm. to grow teeth so you know you suck you get calcium you grow teeth the next thing is you become aggressive because you have to bite the environment then you have to be able to chew it to liquefaction to be able to swallow it to digest it and make it part of the self if you can't do that you swallow things whole like mm. beliefs and ideas and whatever and they become introjects and they don't become part of the self. And that's when you have to, you know, regurgitate them. Mm, okay. That is in his book, the, the, um, the theory of dental aggression. What did I say the title of the book was? Dental, dental something. I, I, yeah. I, well, I, it's a fascinating book. Uh-huh. Huh. That's cool. And the, um, uh, Another thing that, that I think that, you know, that you must do quite a bit of in your work is helping people to identify internal cues, what's going on. I mean, a lot of people must come in, you know, sort of not knowing what they're feeling and not really being able. And I imagine that one thing that you really do in the grounding and the presence is that you help people to kind of translate what's happening inside their body um, into a narrative for themselves. Yeah. Well, Can you talk about that? Not exactly a narrative, but I do actually go the opposite direction. So people will want to tell me an emotion that they're feeling, and I want to change the emotion, which I believe is an abstraction. Hmm. Like they might say that they're sad. And I'll say, no, I don't want to know that, because then they're going to tell me a story. I want to know a sensation. Hmm. Okay. I feel a heaviness where in my chest. Put your hand there. Tell me where you feel the heaviness. Then try to try to describe it in terms of the sensation. Then I can give them something to do to change the sensation. Not me going in and massaging it and taking it away. Them to breathe into it, to do a stretch, to do some kind of a what I call self-release techniques. Because I can give them a yoga thing. I can give them, a, you know, a stretch. I was a dance movement therapist. I can have them do something to open the chest. I can put them in a, 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 a yoga a pose. I've got props. I've got yoga mats. I've got a table. Mm. I've got whatever. And then I can have them breathe. And, yeah, so I don't, you know, necessarily want them to say I feel sad. But... What is the sensation of that in your body? And then I work with that and have them breathe into it. And sometimes, you know, there's emotion connected to it, like tears. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and sometimes they just open the block and energy flows. Because mm -hmm. that's what I'm more interested in. I don't need the story mm -hmm. necessarily. I see. How, how's that useful for a couple? I mean, if I, if, I, if I say I'm feeling sad and you help me to kind of open it up through these, you okay. know, through these tools. So I take the primary scenario of each person individually in front of the other person. That takes like probably two sessions for each one. Okay. So they, and they think they already know everything about the other person, but See, wherever I get a positive response, I go into that in detail. It's like archaeology. I dig, you know, and mm -hmm. I dig, and I find out a lot more. And so the people, the other, the spouse, who thinks they already knew everything, finds out a lot more. Because I, you know, I get, I get a lot more out of the positive response. So listening, you know, they get very, you know, empathic. You know, when they tell a story about something that happened to them when they were a child, a lot of times the spouse will get a lot of feelings toward, you know, toward the person, even though they already knew the story, but not in the same way as when I'm getting it out of them, you know. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's it's very you know they they get a lot of emotional connection mm -hmm. listening to each other's primary scenario the way that i take it it's not just checking off a checklist you know mm -hmm. so we do that we do that first in the first several sessions we're always in the presence of the of the other person Mm -hmm. So there's that. And I forgot what your question was. And so and what's the, and, and so you, you help somebody to around their primary scenario, you'll say, you know, your primary scenarios, you didn't get enough mirroring or, 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 or abandonment, I imagine would be two that are quite common. Is that, would that sound, does that sound right? That those would be yeah. Well, you, you identify, you know, the developmental injury is what I call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where that is on that scale between high abandonment or high invasion, no one is on the extreme ends because they wouldn't even be able to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. They would be <coughs> maybe in, you know, in a hospital. But mm -hmm. so they're somewhere in between, you know. Mm -hmm. But if mm -hmm. they're opposites, then that's very enlightening mm -hmm. because they're feeding each other, you know, and that then just to even know that and identify that and be able to, you know, each person has to work on their own injury. Mm -hmm. They can't, he can't repair her and she can't repair him. Each person has to work on their own injury. And when they stop trying to do it, you know, with, e with each other, then they can get more into a, what I call a homeostatic balance. Mm -hmm. It's not ever rigid. It's always homeostatic. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And and if I if I if I can locate where the inv would you locate where the invasion is inside your body? Would you say uh, every muscle in my body right now wants to go at you or move towards you in a way that might be invasive? Would would you help somebody work on that? And then and would well, that be yeah, you would always when a person you know uh, you would always let me just say it this way you'd always identify the triggers and what that would feel like in their body at the time. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just knowing what the triggers are, you know, mentally, but what is the feeling in your body at the time? And, you know, one might assume, although assuming isn't always, you know, accurate, but one might assume that there's a level of tension involved in something like that. But you, I don't tell people what they're feeling. I always want to ask them mm -hmm. for them to discover and tell me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and I mean, you know, a lot of this, a lot, so much of the work is about sex. We haven't talked much about sex today. Where does, where, where, I mean, are we just missing a whole component of this? Or is this, have we well, been talking well, about sex the entire time? I call myself a sex therapist. And, you know, that's one aspect of the work. Well, if someone comes in and they, you know, want to work on, you know, sexuality, then I can always, you know, help them with that. And, you know, as I told you, there's a whole book that Jack and Bev wrote called The Intimate Couple. But um, what, what I start out with are various, you know, exercises. If they can't do the ground, they have to do the grounding, the containment, the boundaries, and the presence. Without that, we can't start to work on anything else. Mm. So we work on things like approach. First, we work on desire. If they don't do all those other things and, how, and they're not in their body, how do they know if they have desire? After we work on desire, there's a whole graph for sexuality. The second part is approach. Who initiates? You know, you're not going to just work with, you know, intercourse. You start with all these other things. Mm -hmm. You know, do you have desire? What does that feel like? And, you know, that's an energetic concept. You know, and I could go into whole lectures on all of these things. Mm -hmm. But then there's approach. That's who initiates. And. You know, Jack would give people, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it works. He would say, you have to make an appointment to have sex. Whether you like it or not, you make an appointment. Wednesday at 7 p.m. on the kitchen table. And you just do it, you know. Um, even if you don't feel like it at all, but you just make, do that. He would do stuff like that. So then it's an uh, approach. Now, approach means 
Like who initiates? Does, do you always expect someone else to initiate? Do you ever initiate and work with that concept? Then the other thing is, you know, building energy, which you probably might call foreplay. But that is, you know, you work on your breathing exercises. You know, wait until you have a certain level of energy that you've built up. You know, then you don't worry about, you know, the orgasm because that's just, you know, the release of the energy. But if you don't build up enough energy to have a release, releasing, you could have an orgasm by, by your big toe. It isn't, Jack called it the big bang theory. It isn't how hard you pull the trigger. It's what size bullet do you put in the gun? Hmm. So you have to do breathing. You have to tolerate. You have to contain. You have to be able to build up enough energy to have a release. How you trigger the release is, is you know, if you don't build up enough energy, you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That's called the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. So we work with we work with all those things is, you know, desire approach and then building energy and being able to breathe and contain and tolerate high levels of energy then you know and then of course you know contact and presence and you know all those things Mm -hmm. so it isn't about sex it's about energy Mm. bottom Mm -hmm. line Mm -hmm. it's Mm. always about that Mm. nice your aliveness, your ability to tolerate your own aliveness and be vulnerable and stay in contact with another person, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. If, if people want to find out more about your work or about IBP or just in general, I mean, if, if you were to say to somebody who, who says, God, I, just, I really don't have very much understanding of somatic therapies in general, how would you suggest that they go about kind of getting more Getting more, in, um, getting more information, getting more um, experience. Well, you know, it was cutting a cutting edge way back in the day when I was only in my twenties, and it's still cutting edge. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. But then when they got the neuroscience, then people thought, oh, well, this is somatic because of the brain. But that's still just the brain. You know, it's still just the head. It's still not the body, but they think it's the body. So I don't know. Um, There are more schools of somatic psychotherapy today than there used to be. You know, since Jack passed, um, our training institute, Beverly closed down the training institute. She's 80 years old. She doesn't want to run it. Mm. And so we don't, our training institute is not uh, functioning anymore. I don't live in LA anymore. Mm. So, you know, I, I can't do that. But, you know, there are other schools. There's Peter Levine's group. There's Pat, uh, Pat, Og- Pat Ogden's group. Pat Ogden's group. Uh-huh. You know, so there are some schools of somatic. Uh, psychotherapy that are quite thriving in a well and uh, you can get training in them Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how much of PACT has somatic you know basis in it I do you know not just the boundary work you know the presence work Um, we have all kinds of you know experiential exercises that I do with couples besides just what we've talked about Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. but those are the basic ones, but I mean, there's all kinds of little things you can do with them by, you know, there's a finger exercise where you have them hold their hands out and, you know, one finger is how much you think you're in the relationship and the other hand is how much you think your partner's in the relationship. I can show you, but it won't show. Uh-huh. Like See. Eyes are closed. How much do I think I'm in the relationship? How much I think the partner is? Then you Uh open up your eyes and you look at yours and then you look at what the partner said Uh and they could be, you know, how much is the same and how much is different and Mm. who thinks what about yourself and the other. And, you know, so there's all kinds of, then there's a rowing exercise 
where everybody's, you know, sitting next to each other and you pretend you're in a boat and you start rowing and then, then who says who's in charge and then when you're in charge and then the other person's in charge and you go faster and slower and so forth like you're rowing a boat. And it's really interesting. It shows you so much what goes on in the relationship. So there's a bunch of experiential exercises that you can do that are nonverbal with couples. Like mm -hmm. those are just two examples. Uh -huh. Just to throw that in there before we stop. Great. And IBP, I mean, you know, the other thing about, about the book that you guys wrote, I mean, there's, it, you go by every, every sort of area of the body, like the eyes, the chest. That's the Reikian segments. Right. And where, and it's really great. I mean, you know, what you're looking for in terms of how, how it would, how it might've related to early developmental history and what might show up if somebody's nearsighted or farsighted, totally fascinating. Like just the kind of, the kind of interactions that, you that know, nobody, how it plays out. Including, including Reich or Lowen, nobody else has written that stuff down mm. before mm -hmm. or since. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's true. I mean, I sometimes, you know, have, uh, I do some supervision at, or sometimes just talking to going to a networking luncheon or something. Mm -hmm. And people will go like, oh my God, I have that book. It's amazing. People who don't even do somatics uh -huh. have that book because, you know, it was written in 1985. Right. There's a lot of stuff in there, even if you don't practice somatics. Uh huh. You know, a lot of object relations and. Yeah, we didn't you know, even frankly, get into. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Frankly, uh, um, uh, self psychology influenced me, you know, mm. more more so than, although I like Winnicott a lot, mm. Mm -hmm. but uh, Kohut influenced me even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the um, a, a lot of the Gestalt therapists were very influenced by self self psychology. Not a lot, but no. Some. Okay. Uh huh. Interesting. Um, well, I, it sort of split the Gestalt community. Half of them did, and half of them didn't. But I you see. know. It's all political in the end, right? <laughs> right, and uh, and so I think let's let's close on the idea of what you know. In, in fact, we talk a lot about therapist self regulation and about sort of you know the the um, the therapist staying well regulated in the room. Mm -hmm. How how mm -hmm. how can you talk a little bit about um, kind of the the therapist's role in terms of in terms of how they their body. What they're, mm -hmm. what, um, well, I have ahead. to practice all of those concepts. I have to be totally present all the time. I never split off and start thinking about buying cat food. I mean, I have to be able to listen and not forget. So I stay present all the time. Mm. I stay grounded in my body. Um, I'm breathing. I don't hold my breath. And I actually practice yoga in a chair. In other words, um, practicing Tadasana. In other words, mm. you know, it's like a, a mountain pose, only I'm sitting down. Mm -hmm. So my feet are on the floor. I don't cross my legs uh, unless I'm taking notes. And I only take notes rarely in the first session. Mm. Or I'm reading the scenario or writing something on a whiteboard. Otherwise, I'm sitting. My legs aren't crossed. My arms aren't crossed. My bottom half is grounded on the floor and my top half is lifted and breathing. I, you know, I, I'm almost 80 years old myself mm. and I walk with perfect, I wouldn't say perfect, but you know, very good posture. I stand straight up. Mm. I go to the market and there's people I know of my, my age are shuffling along, can hardly push their cart. And I'm like almost running along next to them. <laughs> and I really, you know, I really think that's a combination of yoga and that I do all this breathing all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm 78 years old and I, I, well, I used to run up and down the stairs. Now I have to hold on to the railing because my children are afraid <laughs> that I'll fall. But mm -hmm. You know, I mean, because of all this work, the yoga and breathing all the time, and because I sit like I do, like I'm now, you can't see and they won't see because it's not a video.
but I'm very careful about the way that I sit so I can breathe, so my chest is open, my diaphragm is open, my feet are on the floor. I don't sit like this. I don't bend over. Mm. You know, I have to, you know, be able to breathe at the end of a day. And I can work sometimes seven hours back mm. to back. I feel great. I mm. feel wide awake. I'm not so tired. I'm not worn out. I go have dinner. I can go dancing. <laughs> you're, you're making me feel like a slouch. <laughs> It's amazing. Oh, well, you know, there's a book, Christine Caldwell. I don't know if you know who she is, but no. she's a, you know, she's a, the top person of the somatic department at, uh, um, in Boulder at Naropa. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, we, she wrote a book called uh, Getting in Touch, A Guide to the New Body Psychotherapies. And I wrote a chapter in it and she wrote the introduction and she said, that I was a rock star. <laughs> that in go. my spare time, I seen back up in a rock and roll band, <laughs> which is because she came to visit me, and we went out to a to a club, and a guy I knew whose band was playing, we got up and we sang back up. We went, we sang "Ride Sally Ride." <laughs> nice. Well. That was a few years ago, but not that many years ago. Well, I, Marjorie Rand, uh, therapist, rock star, yogi. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's been a real pleasure talking to you today, and I really yeah, appreciate the time. Um, yeah. Well, while I'm still here, you know, I'm I'm definitely willing, you know, to give the history. Okay. Well, and you do a hell of a job doing it. I appreciate it. And um, and uh, thanks again. Well, thank you, Jason. Okay. Okay. Bye now.